Good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, the colloquial series at the School of Library and Information Science. And today, with great pleasure, we have uh, Mr. John Doe from Credo Reference to give a talk on the future of digital reference services. John has been the CEO of Credo Reference for five years, and uh, he's going to share with us his vision on where reference is going in this ever-changing world, especially its ever-digitized world. Today, I hope to actually contrast Credo's vision of the future with Google's vision of the future, just so we make a real point on that. But first, I just want to say how glad I am to be out here. I feel really lucky. Do you feel lucky? Because, well, it's good because the day I left, I had to shovel nine inches of snow. I looked at the 10-day forecast and told my wife, who's a school teacher, so has to be at school early in the morning, the forecast says no snow while the 10 days that I'm gone. And it has snowed four days out of this, the, the eight I've been gone so far. So uh, um, now I just want to tell you, first of all, that I, I really discovered the library business in earnest when I was 50. Ten years ago, I joined a company called Silver Platter. And those of you who are of a certain age will know Silver Platter, and others won't. But it was uh, actually the first company that really put uh, bibliographies onto a CD. And Silver Platter was meant to indicate not only the CD, but also the concept of service. Because the library business, if it's not anything, it's actually about service. And I really, my first, I should say, I think there's something genetic about library science. Because my mother was a library researcher for Encyclopedia Britannica. And my aunt was a librarian at Case Western Reserve. And in 1968, when I joined a startup on Wall Street, my mother thought it was the, a significant disappointment to the family. <laughs> she said, John, oh, I'm sorry, why didn't, I thought you were going to do something useful with your life. <laughs> Instead, you're just going off and thinking about making money. So uh, uh, in fact, I think she, would, she was long gone by the time I joined Silver Platter, but I think she'd feel that I'd made some amends. And uh, indeed, I, I love the, the work in terms of uh, uh, reference, online reference, and where that's going, because I think it's such an, a changing field. And I've got here a number of things. We're not going to talk that much about Credo itself, because I mainly am talking about where I see things and how they ought to end up. And, and also, I have some homework for you and other kinds of things. Unfortunately, those of you who are watching this webcast, you, well, if you do the homework, you can send it to me by email. So in any case, uh, so today's talk, it's actually part of a, a larger inquiry. I've said it's comparing Credo's vision with Google's vision. It's part of a larger inquiry of thinking about, in reference systems in the future, how can the expertise of a reference librarian be brought to bear on the performance of that system? You know, basically using the things that reference librarians, librarians in general, are skilled at and trained for. So, um, one of the things we're going to look at also is a model that we use, one of several models that we use to model user behavior in terms of um, online reference, or any kind of reference, actually. But, uh, and indeed, we're going to compare these uh, two questions of vision. Even if you're just a beginner in terms of library science, you may very likely have recently been a student. So you'll be able to answer this question as well. And that is, where do students get stuck where if there were only a reference librarian right nearby, they would be able to get some help. So what I want you to write down is, indeed, uh, uh, what is that circumstance of where they get stuck? Try, try to just do one on each card. Um, 
think a little bit about the profile of the student. So, you know, if it's, I mean, one example is uh, beginning students often don't have the vocabulary to compose a proper query. They're stymied. They don't even, you know, they've got a psychology paper to do and they're looking at psych lit and they don't know what to do. So that's a spot where they get stuck. And if a reference librarian was there, they'd show them a subject encyclopedia in psychology or they'd uh, otherwise get them unstuck. So that's an example and you'll, you'll come up with a lot of others, I know. And then a little bit about the context of their stuckness and what would a reference librarian do uh, to get them unstuck, so that um, gives a little context of what this means. And, uh, but first, I want to give a little bit of description of Google's vision of the future. So here's Terry Winograd. Meanwhile, computer scientists are trying to improve the search engines themselves. Terry Winograd is a professor of computer science at Stanford, where he was Google co-founder Larry Page's graduate advisor. Winograd's currently a consultant to Google. He says the holy grail of the whole search business is a machine that doesn't just search, but actually answers questions. What you really want, of course, is the mind-reading machine. Right? You want something that you think about what you want, and it knows enough about what you're looking for and what's there to come up with the most relevant things. Winograd says that means the search engine needs to know a little about you and the things for which you search. For example, say you search for the word China. Are you curious about a country or shopping for dinnerware? If you've just done searches for Japan, then you probably want a country, whereas if you've just done searches for silverware, you probably want dishes. So you could imagine algorithms which would consider the things that you've searched for recently or even over a period of time and take those into account in the ranking function. Terry Winograd is also a member of the Credo Advisory Board. So as much as I'm going to disparage and tear down his vision of the future, uh, it's all among friends. So, in fact, we're having dinner with him tonight um, because he lives right up in Palo Alto. Oh, by the way, there is a mind-reading machine available on eBay. It was built in the year 2282 and transported back to uh, our day. <laughs> so uh, just so you, it's probably already been bought. So those of you who have waited too long to get it, you're going to miss out on it. So. The series on search engines brought a suggestion from Amy Hartman of Toledo, Ohio. She writes, I was struck by frustrated scientists and business people saying that if they could just develop the equivalent of an electronic brain which could interact with people to help them find what they really want, that would solve all searching problems. Well, I hope you're sitting down because I can solve that problem. I am a public librarian. I do not require you to look at advertising. I'll keep asking you clarifying questions until I feel I have a complete understanding of what you're looking for. Why not give us a try? So this contrasted very clearly of two different visions of how reference might work. But we know that Amy Hartman's not going to be available at 2 in the morning when a student is trying to finish their paper. And in the number of people that are actually approaching um, situations where they get stuck, where reference librarianship is something that actually could help them. So a lot of what uh, Credo is about, and a lot of what uh, 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 online reference systems are about, are indeed discovering how can you do some of the things admittedly maybe not as well as what Amy Hartman promises to do um, that might actually be relevant to, uh, to the problem. So Now, lest you think that was just Terry's vision of the future, here is uh, the, the lead architect the, at Google talking about uh, how in 50 years everything will be transformed. He even takes it even further 
such that you hardly even have to say anything. It just automatically knows what kind of report you want, and it'll print out the annotated report exactly the way you wanted it. So I don't know who gets graded on that report when you hand it in for your, your term paper, but uh, in any case, this carries it even further of a, of a mind-reading machine that knows everything that you want. So now people have actually done comparisons of reference librarians and query systems. It's a real hard to do. This is real apples to oranges or sesame seeds to watermelons comparison in many ways. It's because uh, how do you compare that interaction? But there's a variety of people who have done this. Like look at how many times somebody has had to restate a query. And uh, I don't know, they would have to compare it both. How many times does a reference librarian have to drag it out of people? I don't know how many of you have studied the reference interview, but much of the literature in the reference interview um, comparing these is, is rather difficult, but it's generally felt that indeed a, a personal reference interview can get much more to the heart of the matter of what a person needs and wants than a query system. And one of the ways they look at this is uh, uh, actually a comparison where they looked at uh, reference systems. This is the, the paper from Oslo College where they looked at reference uh, user revealment and uh, compared reference interviews with query systems. So one of the things that I want to ask all of us is, why are reference librarians so much better? What are the things that make them better? Even without having known them at all before, just the institutional setting in which this occurs creates a huge amount of context about what are the likely subjects? What are the level of subjects that are possibly interested? What are the types of uh, schools of thought that are relevant or, or, or not relevant or allowed or not allowed within the context of that institution or community? So a tremendous amount of context is there available to the librarian that uh, um, you know, would not be available to uh, just one machine that does this for everybody. So one question is, can we, as we see reference service becoming entirely self-service, online reference systems, are there ways in which the reference system can be set up and maintained and almost programmed by uh, skilled librarians that takes into account some of these factors? So one of the one of the obvious ways is obviously choice of what content goes into the online reference system. When I show Credo to a number of people, sometimes they immediately assume that it's the whole library. And it's not. I, I often say, we're superficial and proud of it. <laughs> because if you weren't superficial, you would actually be diving into too much detail that would then not be effective in terms of the reference function. The reference function is facilitative. It's inviting. It's facilitative and then draw you, take you on and make you more effective in the use of the rest of the library. So what material is chosen to be put in that reference function can actually have a big effect in terms of how effective that reference uh, experience is for that particular user. Now we, I just had breakfast with a friend who works at Google this morning and was mentioning that we were, I was going to give a talk comparing and uh, contrasting uh, Google's vision with Credo's vision. Unless you think I'm just making some of this up in terms of that vision around not having librarians involved, he said a core principle of Google is no intermediary. So if there's no intermediary, that means there's nobody who actually has an institutional context to decide, yes, you are a middle school student, or you are you know, in a, in a research institute in, in medical care, or you are whatever. And all of those contexts are so important in terms of actually having a really effective um, reference system. So now I want to just step back for a moment and take a look at 
one of the models that we use for modeling uh, user, uh, our users, and actually I'll mention a couple of others. We use personas, uh, which is a common technique of thinking of the whole individual and their needs. And you picture a particular individual and then you, you even give them names and characteristics and so forth so that you can really think of them as, as, as solving their whole needs. And we right now have three personas that we're working and we'll add additional ones as things go along. Because actually it means you want to get to know people who are like this. So we have one persona which is a reference librarian. Now reference librarians do different things than other users. They know about mark records, they don't mind finding a bibliographic entry, it doesn't scare them. All kinds of things that they come with which are different than other users. We also have a mid-career person on a distance learning, uh, continuing education, getting a degree uh, over distance learning. So, you know, I'm sure many of the students, that would fit many of the students for, uh, for San Jose. And the other is a second year liberal arts major, hasn't decided yet whether she's going to major in social studies, you know, social sciences or humanities, and is taking a number of the different basic courses in psychology 101 and sociology and, and uh, neuroscience and so forth. And uh, we very much want the credo reference experience to be one where somebody who's in that kind of exploratory, truly curious and interested student uh, engaged and that we provide them the best kinds of tools. So that's one model we have. The model I'm going to show you now is actually what we call the modes of reference. This is trying to capture the psychological state of the user as they, per as they uh, pursue a reference question. And uh, these will divide up, in fact, uh, users into, into different modes. I should say that it's important to know that a user is not always self-aware of which mode they're in, and they travel easily from one mode to the next. Um, now, fact-finding is where you're after a specific fact. Now, let me just ask, where, where do you think people turn to most, most, most for, for, for a quick fact? Wikipedia. What's that? Google. Google? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. You, 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 those are actually probably the second place that people look. First place, who's within shouting distance, who I haven't annoyed already, who I can say, hey, who won the, who won the 52 Olympics uh, in Javelin? Or whatever. <laughs> um, but indeed, uh, Wikipedia and Google are certainly, uh, uh, we all turn there. I mean, I, I have a friend who watched the World Cup last year and 30 minutes after the game wanted to know more about Zidane and he went to Wikipedia and, and there was an entry that said, Zidane, whose international career in football ended in disgrace at the 2007 World Cup. That was 20 minutes before. <laughs> so it was already written into his bi biography. Now, in quick answer, people want to get back to what they were doing. They're stuck, but it's, they're stuck with a real simple problem. You know, like I saw an acronym, ATM, but it's not, I, I can tell from context, it's not a cash machine and it's not asynchronous transfer mode. W what could it be? And I don't, know if, I don't know if everybody feels this way, but when I hit an acronym like that, I, even though I know the subject and I could probably go on, I just, I just have to know what it stood for. So, indeed, that's a where, but as soon as I know, I'm on. I don't want to know anything more about it, because I'm, I'm busy reading something about anti-tank missiles, and then I suddenly realize what that is. Or There's about 300 meaningful uses of the, word, of the acronym ATM. There's actually no really good way to do acronyms. If you do it on Google, you'll get about 16 of them. They keep looping back on each other. But um, in any case, quick answer, you're not, because you're eager to get back to what you were doing, you found a word in French and you didn't study French, 
you're actually not very source sensitive. Any answer will do. You're not going to cite it in the paper, so it doesn't matter that your teacher told you not to use Wikipedia. You'll use Wikipedia because it's, you know, nine times out of ten it might be right, so, uh, so it's worth it. And then you get on with what you're doing. Now, a definitive answer is where you really, um, you really need to know not only the answer, but you need to know the answer and the source that it came from. And the source has to be something that will stand up to the use you're going to make of that information. Now, I've carefully chosen my words in that case, because it might be a citation in a legal brief. And the court may have a definition of what constitutes the standard dictionary for that court system. Or it may be a citation in a, in a paper for, for, uh, for school, for college, and you'll have to know, yes, what stands up and what format do I need to put it in and everything else. It may be winning a bar bet with your buddies in the bar and they know they're not going to take the answer from, you know, from that columnist because nobody thinks he speaks it right. So a definitive answer is you have to find a source that is credible to you in terms of your, of your need. Now, I had a situation recently where I, I saw myself shift between quick answer and definitive answer. I was preparing a, a paper about a, uh, a librarian in 1850 who had proposed the development of a, of a library. And in one account, I saw that, indeed, I wanted to know how many books were in this library. And I saw an account that said uh, 70,000 books. And then I was reading somewhere else, and I saw an account that said, well, there's 1.2 million books. So now, all of a sudden, because I was going to use this in a, in a talk, now I'm in definitive answer mode. I have to know, because these are very different numbers, 75,000 and 1.2 million. <coughs> so, um, Turned out there was 75,000 upstairs and 1.2 million down, down below. So they were both right. <laughs> now, discovery is where the user may not actually know exactly what they want. They want someone to help explain it to them, help give them the landscape. They don't have a single question. And in a reference interview, it's probably sometimes hard when somebody comes in and says, you know, what, what do you have about fish? And you don't know if they mean Tom Fish, who's running for congressman, or you know, Moby Dick, who they think is a fish, or, uh, you know, and in some sense, they're asking for some guidance. And there's this element of guidance that also sometimes involves completeness. You know, I'm a ear, nose, throat man, doctor, and I need to know what are the most important things that my discipline should know about dermatology. I've got an hour to study this. And then I want to actually know, I'm not asking for one fact now. I'm asking for, tell me the 10 most important things so I can make sure I've covered the landscape. So these are very different kinds of, uh, and discovery and browsing is a really important part of this kind of reference. Um, unguided exploration. Uh, how many of you would say that you like reading encyclopedias? So they, just, just two of us? <laughs> Well, it is a small number. I know that it's, I, I usually think it's about 15%. But uh, some famous writers uh, loved write, reading encyclopedias, so we're not all alone completely. But it is a little bit like web surfing. It's sort of like, you know, the people who really like this uh, love the fact that there's this, well, Borges called it random, organized randomness. And it's a sense that you're going to discover and learn things that you weren't asking about. And uh, for some people, that's a wonderful pleasure. An unguided exploration, a good reference system, ought to be able to provide that. Ought to be able to put things in, your, in front of you that you had never thought of. And I, I 
one example I use is a student who I asked her, what, 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 what paper do you have coming up? She was taking uh, English composition. And she said, well, I have a paper due on Friday. She's the, my, the assistant of my dentist. And it has to be on Armageddon. I, I don't have any idea what I'm going to write about. So this is a case of sort of unguided exploration. She happened to use the Credo concept map, and up came a, a bubble about Pink Floyd, because some of his colleagues had written something about Armageddon. And she was a Pink Floyd fan, so she thought, oh, this is perfect. So that's actually an example of somebody who is stuck. And this stuck spot is pretty common. If you haven't discovered it for yourself or among students, if you have teenagers uh, who, are learn you know, who come to you and say, Dad, I have a paper due tomorrow on justice. What should I write? You know, it's, it's in a reference interview question, this can be the unanswerable question. You don't know what did they already read? What did, they, did the teacher tell them not to write about? What did they, you know, but a proper system that, uh, that does the discovery right person can sit in front of there and get unstuck from that idea of what sh where shall I start. So this is the whole area of discovery, and, and it has three different modes in it. Diversion. Uh, some people don't take fun seriously enough. <laughs> um, you know, there, needs to be, uh, there needs to be something in the reference system that is uh, indeed uh, fun, engaging. I happen to have, because um, uh, ALA the American Library Association is coming out this year with a new ALA guide to reference. In fact, Charlotte Ford, who's one of the professors here, I understand that she now is from, uh, work, teaches from Alabama, but is still part of the uh, university here, uh, is on the advisory board for the ALA guide to reference. And I decided that I would write a piece to support, because uh, indeed its main editor is on our advisory board, Robert Kieft. Uh, so for Robert Kieft, I wrote a paper about uh, looking at the Kroger edition of the American Library Association Guide to Reference, 1902. And at the back of the Kroger edition, there's a, a list of the hundred titles of reference that every library in America should have, along with their price. So I went through and figured out, well, it turns out that the price would have cost, um, in today's dollars, about $30,000 for those hundred titles. So now we rent Credo for about $2,000. So renting a $30,000 asset for $2,000, that's, that's a pretty good deal. So that was self-gratifying. But more importantly, I looked through and saw what were the actual titles. And actually, one title that is in that list of 100 we have on Credo and has not been updated since 1902. I'll let you know in a minute. We only have about 270 titles, so to have one that we have not updated at all since 1902, and it was on that list as well. But I divided up the titles in that group by what kind of titles were they? And surprisingly, there were some important differences. There were a lot more reviews and bibliographies than we would have in a list today if we were only to pick 100 reference books, because we're used to the fact that you'll get bibliographies online. There were almost no directories. But in 1902, there were very few phone numbers. So the, the, clearly there'd be needs for directories of people in different positions, but uh, indeed very today would be many more directories, I think. And, uh, but there was one category that, in fact, uh, indeed I found in true of every reference room. And I call them quirky titles. They're the things like, um, you know, uh, the cultural literacy, you know, where you can see if, do you know all the, 2,000 things that somebody thinks you need to know if you're an American, like Barbie doll and 
you know, uh, <laughs> whatever. So, uh, or, or curious titles from brewers. I don't know if any of you have come across this, which is sort of like a thinking man's version of that. It's like the things you hear in conversation when somebody says, oh yes, I, I learned the Pathetic Sonata. And you think, oh, I ought to know who wrote that, and I ought to know why it's called the Pathetic Sonata, and I ought to know. And it'll give like a wonderful like, page and a half about the Pathetic Sonata, why it's called that, what movies it's appeared in, and who's ever played it wrong. Or, I mean, a wonderful little sketch on it. And so there's about 1,500 different curious titles of literature and art. Uh, a wonderful book, but not really very serious for any of these fact-finding <coughs> or discovery. It's just an engaging way of drawing people into the library and into the experience of learning about things. So I think uh, diversions is actually an important part of a, of a reference function. So now I don't know if you have any questions about this model, but if you do, I'd be glad to answer. So Credo is an online reference system. It's uh, you know, twice the size of Wikipedia, but all from authoritative sources. And so when we look at, well, we've, what have we done this year to enhance Credo? And we ask ourselves, well, gee, how well has it measured up to the need of people who come to Credo needing a quick answer, <coughs> needing a definitive answer? Looking at the, so all six of those that we do, we then say how well, it, it's, it's a way that we measure part of what we're, we don't have a score or anything, but. It's just a, a way of framing the questions that would then say, yes, we've done a really good job on this. So we, in looking at this recently, because we're coming out with a new, a very new platform for Credo, dramatic changes to the user interface with, you know, with uh, faceted browsing and uh, allowing you to continue your search on beyond Credo into uh, Oxford or into, uh, uh, you know, WorldCat or into the, the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the OPEC of the library. So we've done a lot of things sort of to take, allow, you know, allow people to do a lot more with Credo than they've done before. And so that we measure up against this. And I have to say the games and diversions is still suffering. We don't, you know, we've got the crossword solver, but there are a lot more things I think we can do. And it's, it's by looking at this model, we can say, gee, we haven't done enough around games and diversions. We need to actually put some thought to it. This is a little bit about why do users um, underspecify their queries. And a lot of theories about it. This is, it just happens to be one of my, my uh, pet theories about why they underspecify. In a certain sense, sometimes, I, at least I find this for myself, I will state the question in as broad terms as possible because I don't want someone making an assumption on my behalf without my examining that assumption. So I will try to state it as broadly as I can so that I, because I don't know what's available when I'm asking a reference question. And, um, and so the, 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 the reference librarian is actually this nexus between what, what's needed and what's available. And so it's an unknown facing an unknown in a way. So in some sense, the lack of underspecif the underspecification is necessary. I think a lot of underspecification is just a matter of time. You know, you type one word into Google, even though you know that's not very good, because you're hoping that that will be good enough. And in certain modes of reference, good enough is fantastic. In other modes, it's not good enough. So um, depending on the mode a person is, they may just specify one word just because they, that's all they need. So just a matter of economy. So, so indeed, this is just a little bit of elaboration of this whole question. And looking at Robert Taylor's, which is the, the fellow who I referred to earlier, and I got all of that material from Joe Jane's book on, the, uh, on uh, reference in the digital age. 
in which he talks about these, uh, the context that the, the reference librarian brings to the table in making this match between what I'd like to know from the user and what there is to know. So now back to this question that we began with. What are the ways in which librarians, if they had the right tools, if we could give you the right levers, what are the ways in which you could change the user's experience to their benefit? So that's an open question. It's a, such an open question that you may just want to email me about it. But if one of you has an uh, idea or thought about it, I would want to know. You are skeptical about the idea of a concept map. With Credo, we have two concept maps. We've got the one that we've had for the last uh, five years, and we have a new one that's coming out you know, just in the next uh, couple of months <coughs> will be actually rolled out into, uh, into uh, actual production use. And they're very different in their uh, presentation. Uh, but in terms of looking at it in terms of the question that you're raising, first of all, there are many different learning styles. So some people are visual learners, and they actually will see relationships that will occur to them because something has been put in front of them, even if this thing that's been put in front of them isn't perfect. It could be, in fact, I often say, all models are wrong. It's just some are more useful than others. And especially in this mode where a student is stuck, where they say, gee, you know, I have to write a paper on this and I have no ideas. What should I do? Throwing up several different models, some of which may be, uh, you know, may, as I say, none, none of them may be exactly right, but it will get the mind thinking. If you look up uh, on either of our concept maps, like put in strategy, it will pull up, you know, a cluster, it'll start building a cluster. How is strategy used with other terms within the reference system? So this will be different in every, in every library will be different depending on what content they chose for Credo. So in a medical library, it's not going to bother with uh, game theory and prisoner's dilemma and all of those things, because those are all part of uh, uh, a sort of uh, business school. But the business school one probably won't have all the stuff about K strategies and E strategies that are part of evolutionary strategies, although they might, because uh, indeed some of those cross-fertilization between those two fields is often one of the learnings that can happen. So in a general library, somebody would put in strategy, and they would see a whole cluster around, you know, global mutually assured destruction. And uh, then a whole bunch of strategies around business, greenfield strategies, you know, uh, uh, activity-based costing models and things like this. And then all of the things around game theory and, and uh, as I mentioned, prisoner's dilemma and minimax and things like that. And then also the biological stuff. So somebody exploring the word strategy and how it was related uh, would actually find uh, quite a bit there that might be new to them. And uh, I think in many ways it's actually a matter of putting up lots of choices. When you're in the exploratory mode, you want lots of choices put up in a meaningful way. And most search engines give you four, five, ten choices at once. The concept map gives you as many as you want. The old one gives you about 200, and you have to float over it to see them all. But uh, the newer one is much more well organized. You, you see a cluster of relationships and you move to a new, like, like let's say we put in strategy and up came the K strategies and the R strategies of evolution and you decide that's actually what you want to know more about. So you put that at the center, you put the R strategy in the center. And then it comes up with Fisher's paradox about how adaptive, uh, adaptive organizations can become over-adaptive and therefore unadaptable. And um, all kinds of wonderful things that go on in that area. So you can actually then go from there to there to there, there almost like uh, 
you know, going across a jungle of, of, of a, uh, from one lead to the next. And uh, I think that, that for exploratory learning, I think that works really well. So, um, all right, any other? Let me uh, just see what else we've got here. So I mentioned clearly the content choice will be an important part. The online reference system that takes everything that's been written on reference and puts it in the reference experience is actually, I think, not very helpful. In fact, uh, I think a student learning psychology 101, if you tell them, all, oh, don't worry, you now have on, this, uh, on Google and on this system, we've now digitized everything that's ever been written about psychology, and it's all available to you. Uh, it's a, a little un unhelpful. Or if it's Web 2.0 one, it'll say, here's what everybody in the world is saying today about psychology. So including some friends of mine who I don't think you want to hear what they're saying about psychology. <laughs> So I think actually in the reference system, you particularly want to be able to pick the, the content that is really saves time of the busy people in your institution because it's relevant to the mission that you have a good idea that they're on because you know who they are. Um, I mean, even in a public library, you have a, a sense of what constitutes. It's not exactly the same as the subjects in a core, core subjects of an academic library, but um, might include more fixing your car, finding a nursing home for your my parents are, uh, you know, finding a job or starting a business. But um, so I just want to show you one example of how within, and these are examples from XREFER. We changed our name last year to Credo. Um, but this is an example where we have related entries from one work to another. So this is a way in which we allow the integration of the reference works that we have to actually serve the user who is now exploring. So. In, in this case, a user was, uh, you know, found this mother and child on a couch uh, a painting in, in our uh, in Bridgman library and uh, wants to know more about this and wants to know more about Whistler. And Bridgman has some information about, uh, about Whistler, but in fact, as related entries that we used to call X references. And gee, here's a couple of quotation sources about Whistler and uh, a subject guide for art and a, and a couple of bibliographic entries about Whistler. So the student is not constrained to the work that they're in. Now, one reason that I, I put that in there is that actually in our new system that we're coming out with shortly, we're adding two new features, which is one is continuing your search into other resources of the library, because the reference function is not very useful if it doesn't draw people in and then take them into other parts of the library. So this is uh, a search which may actually take them, as I say, to the, to the catalog or to the WorldCat itself, or to look at neighboring libraries, or to other resources within the library, or other uh, uh, search products uh, which are relevant to the reference experience. So, um, and another aspect, so it's not only outbound uh, searching or continuing your search, but also related resources or sites that you might go to. So just the way we now have related entries, we could also have related sites. And so I actually want to ask you some specific questions that relate to this. And that is, uh, when we think about what some of these related, continuing your search or related sites could be, they fall into three categories. So the first category are things that are generic. You know, if we can tell that you're a subscriber to JSTOR or we know that the JSTOR search experience is one that's successful for everybody anyway, then we can put in a link that says, hey, continue your search in JSTOR. So now 
a student has come in, Psychology 101 paper, and they, they looked at one of our, uh, they either did a concept map or they did, looked at one of our subject encyclopedias on psychology and they saw something about late life psychosis and they thought, oh, I'm going to do my paper on late life psychosis and, and now they can immediately search JSTOR just with one click. It takes the context that they're in and uses that as a way of searching another resource available to most people. So those are the kinds of things we would put in generically. They'd be relevant to any, uh, any uh, library having core subjects. The, the second category of these continued types are, are ones that would be content-driven. So I'll give you an example that comes from the UK where JISC, which is the leading academic uh, consortium of academic uh, colleges uh, universities, uh, they have five subject portals in social sciences, humanities, medicine, I forget what the other two are. So we could determine that indeed you are right now at an entry that is related to medicine, so we'll give as a related site, you may want to go to the JSTOR, to the, to the JISC subject portal on medicine as a way of continuing what you're doing. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to move on. So that's an example of a content-driven continuation. Now the last category is ones that would be customized by the librarian of the local subscription. And this is the one that's actually where most, uh, is most controversial within our company right now. So where could you end up? You could end up at local subject portals or other licensed products that you uniquely had. Maybe you subscribe to the poetry uh, website that Columbia University publishes. There are about 500 you know, libraries that do. We wouldn't want to make that generic because we don't want to give any dead links for people. So, you know, we we now are in about 1,200 libraries, and so for most libraries, they wouldn't that wouldn't be relevant to them. So we wouldn't make it a generic uh, carry forward. We would have to have some relationship with them to be able to say, or it would be customized by the librarian to say, yes, we have that poetry thing. So if you're ever in a poetry-related topic, include that as one of the related uh, sites to go to. Or there could be uh, local archives, other kinds of things that would be local. So the question that I have for you is, what degree of customizations would be feasible for um, uh, local libraries to do? And I've said that this is a big debate right now among members of our product team. Uh, you should know, by the way, that half of our marketing and product team are MLS librarians. There were no librarians working for Credo when I joined. I, I said, we can't be in this business without actually that kind of insight being part of what we do. So indeed, a lot of them, well, the, the debate is, are we, by suggesting that librarians might want to customize this, are we already putting a burden in terms of stuff? Uh, librarians tend to already have quite a bit to do already. So the question is, are there benefits that you could see from this customization that you would say, yes, that would be worth doing? We, want, we may not choose to customize, but we'd want the hooks to be able to do so. So that's a question for all of you. Anyway, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be able to come here. This is the world's largest library school, I understand, and it's the best example I always give of a public library and an academic library that share the same, uh, same uh, walls and same facilities. So, uh, you all do really good work, and uh, I'm really pleased to have had the chance to talk to you. So, thanks.